0: Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Simea Keynes, the trade and globalization editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Jed Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: This episode is about EU trade policy, and we are so very excited to have with us a very special guest.
2: My name is Sabine Weyand. I work at the European Commission as Director General for Trade. Sabina, hello. Hello, Chad. Hello, Sumaya. Thank you for having me.
1: So we're recording this on January 15th, which coincidentally is the one-year anniversary of the U.S. and China signing the phase one trade agreement. So it seems only fitting um, that we should start off by talking about the EU's response to that or maybe that's not how you would characterize it, but this EU-China Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, or CAI. And so this was basically announced a couple of weeks ago. We still haven't seen the text yet, um, so we can't really get into the weeds of it. But that being said, the deal has come under quite a bit of criticism already, especially, I think, from the, from the United States side, even without seeing text. Uh, there were signals coming out of the Biden team that they might have rather – that you had waited um, until they arrived before signing this agreement with, with, with China. So maybe channeling the, the Biden administration here, the concern is maybe uh, that the European Union has tied its hands and, and given up some leverage that it might jointly take with the United States, with a Biden administration to address areas of common concern uh, when it comes to China. So what would be your response to those sort of criticisms?
2: The negotiations between the EU and China on an investment agreement started seven years ago. And they were pretty dormant um, until about a year, a year and a half ago. Then we had a summit in 2019, which followed the adoption of an EU policy paper on our strategy vis-a-vis China. In that policy paper, we described China at the same time as a cooperation partner, an economic competitor, and a systemic rival. China did not like that last description. And they have been trying to convince us to see them more as a negotiating partner. And so after seven years of negotiation, indeed, at the end of last year, we managed to conclude the negotiations because we had fulfilled the mandate that was given to us. And that mandate was to rebalance the situation in terms of market access, because the EU market is a lot more open than the Chinese market, of course. So we had to redress that imbalance. Secondly, we wanted to deal with so-called level playing field issues, which affected the treatment of uh, EU investors in China. Through, for instance, the behavior of um, state-owned enterprises that privilege Chinese companies when they are buying goods and services, uh, or through the intransparent use of subsidies, or through forced technology transfer. And so our task was to make a major contribution to rebalancing that situation and leveling the playing field. Uh, The third plank is sustainable development, where we had to convince China to agree to the standard that we have set with our most recent uh, free trade agreements, despite the fact that this is only an investment agreement and not a fully-fledged free trade agreement. And here, China, in the end... And that was really the very last piece that fell into place, accepted to comply with the Paris Agreement and to fully implement, effectively implement the Paris Agreement, but also to undertake continuous and sustained efforts to ratify the ILO conventions on forced labor that it has not ratified so far. So this is the standard that we have, for instance, in our recent uh, FDA agreements with Vietnam um, and uh, that is what we, you will also find in Kai when the text will be published next week. Now, in terms of uh, criticism of uh, the agreement that I have heard, it has come from different angles. One angle was... Uh, This came as a surprise, but I have just described the process uh, that uh, we have undertaken. So for those who have been following the uh, negotiations, it uh, cannot have been a surprise that both sides worked with the ambition to conclude the negotiations by the end of this year. So in December, we found ourselves in the situation where we had achieved our negotiating objectives And any negotiator knows that there comes a time in the negotiation when you have to bank. What, however, has not necessarily been seen is that uh, Kai is only one plank of our China strategy. We are also, at the same time, strengthening our autonomous toolbox to deal with distortions that the Chinese system creates. And this whole autonomous toolbox is unaffected by the CHI agreement. So we remain fully flexible and able to apply our own rules as, uh, as we have set them out. So CHI does not limit our policy space in any way in this. CHI is one building block in a bigger strategy And this strategy includes close cooperation with the United States.
0: Can I ask a question in a different way, which is, to do any deal, the Chinese need to get something out of it. I I guess I'm unclear about what they got out of it, if not some commitment from the EU that would effectively in some way limit their policy space. What China gets out
2: of this deal ...is a confirmation of the openness of the EU market. I think China saw that the mood vis-à-vis Chinese economic practices... ...but also political practices is changing in the EU. And I think they are concerned about a rollback of the openness... ...they have been enjoying so far. Now, from our point of view, we do not see this as a concession to China because the bindings we are doing are ones which are essentially bindings we have already made uh, in the WTO under the GATS. So there is not really new, fresh market access that goes beyond this. And to commit to non-discrimination is not something we see as a concession, because where we regulate our economy, we think that these regulations should apply to any investor in the EU. So we don't need policy space to discriminate. We need policy space to regulate, and that is unaffected by uh, CHI. We also, of course, preserve our space to apply foreign direct investment screening for security purposes. So
0: nothing in CHI would limit that policy space. What do you think the biggest practical effect of CHI will be
2: In terms of market access, we get genuine new market access over and above the existing level of market openness in China in a number of areas. That is, for instance, the case uh, for new investments in electric and hybrid vehicles. It is the case for investments in private hospitals in a number of the bigger cities in uh, China. Uh, there is uh, new market access in cloud services. The other element beyond market access is the level playing field. So we get a commitment of non-discrimination against uh, European companies, for instance, in the area of state-owned enterprises acting as purchasers of goods and services. Um, We get commitments on uh, forced technology transfer, which put us on a par with the United States agreement in the phase one deal. Now, does this deal with all distortions uh, in our relationship? Of course not. But it is an important step to rebalance the relationship.
1: One last question, from me on Kai, just very quickly as a, as a non-European, as an American. So these commitments that China has taken on that you mentioned on hospitals, electric vehicles, cloud, are they doing so on an MFN basis? And so I, as will I, as an American, get access to, to, to this as well, or is this purely for Europeans?
2: The market access commitments that China has taken on services in the services sector, whether that is financial services or whether that is uh, uh, research and development, uh, etc., they are taken on an MFN basis. So others will benefit from that as well. So uh, from that point of view, I think when people will see the text, I think they will see that there is a lot in it which goes beyond the bilateral EU-China relationship and which has uh, the potential to prize open the Chinese market to the benefit uh, of everyone. The situation is different with regard to manufacturing, uh, because there are no MFN commitments in the WTO on uh, investment in manufacturing. So these benefits accrue to EU investors.
0: Great. We are looking forward to seeing that text, and I'm sure we will comb through it um, with, with a critical eye. You will not be the only ones.
1: OK. Um... So let's let's move on and maybe get to this question of what it is going to mean for the United States and, and European Union to cooperate together on issues of joint concern with China. Um, and so we've heard from the Biden administration, you know, talk about working with allies. I also wanted to acknowledge this 11-page document that, that you all put out in December, that described ways in which you looked forward to potentially working together with a new administration, uh, including on issues involving China. But if I sort of step back and, and paraphrase the traditional American frustrations with, with Europe, it's that you all are slow, um, and the commission say can't do much. Um, a lot of power sits with, with member states. And you know, historically, when it came to challenging China at the WTO, it was very much the United States that took the lead. Member states are oftentimes worried about protecting their own subsidies, uh, and so they're maybe not willing to, to go far enough to challenge China and its state-owned enterprises. Uh, the Germans export so much to China that they're reluctant to, to undermine that. So while the EU talks a good talk, um, you're not actually willing to, to put enough skin in the game. So that's the historical uh, version of, of events tell us about how this is this is going to change so what are the next steps likely to be when it comes to working with the new US administration on areas of common concern or should we just expect to uh, to, to, to sit back and watch the EU piggyback on on American efforts
2: I think it is important to look at the way the EU policy towards China has evolved over the last couple of years we have put in place, A foreign direct investment screening mechanism is record speed, and we've been applying it for five months now, and we see that it is beginning to have an impact on the scrutiny that uh, investments by third countries undergo inside the EU. So this is a practical way in which EU policy uh, has changed and has evolved We have come forward with a white paper to address foreign subsidies in the internal market, and this will lead to a legislative proposal that will come out in the middle of this year. So, there are concrete ways in which uh, EU policy towards China has been evolving, and this is something we can work on with the US administration. And one concrete proposal is to set up a Trade and Technology Council. To deal with the issues that uh, we both face in terms of export control, where again, we have recently strengthened our own EU framework um, on FDI screening, on issues of regulating for the future. Here, actually, we have been frustrated in the past. We have made many offers to the US administration to work together on setting standards for artificial intelligence, on connected cars, etc., Um, And these offers were not necessarily picked up because the U.S. system was rather slow and it was rather difficult to get the different agencies to work together. So I also think that very often the difference between the EU and the U.S. is exaggerated in terms of the unity of the U.S. on the one hand and the diversity of the EU on the other hand. For the U.S., the motto is e pluribus unum. And for the EU, it is that there's strength and diversity. Actually, if you look at it in detail, uh, we are not that different.
0: Can I ask about subsidies? So one thing that has been a feature of the, the US-EU relationship has been coordinated work with Japan, w- with trilateral discussions about how to write new rules that could constrain subsidies. And I'm not sure I've ever seen China mentioned explicitly, but uh, it's 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 there implicitly. And I suppose the question I've always had about this is even if you manage to agree on rules on subsidies that, you know, EU member states could feel comfortable with that they weren't suddenly going to come back to bite them, how do you get the Chinese to sign up? I mean, at one point it looked like, oh, you know, you have all this leverage of the American tariffs. Why don't the Americans offer to reduce their tariffs and and then they'll sign up to these subsidies rules? Doesn't look like that's the game. Or at least I doubt the Americans are going to be very happy with the EU just watching while the Americans are the ones applying all the, the pressure. So so yeah, what's, what's the plan? How is the EU going to help get the Chinese to sign up to these rules agreed in the trilateral process? What we are looking at is to work
2: with the US, Japan, but also other like-minded countries to agree on an update of the WTO rulebook. We had made indeed good progress on the issue of uh, industrial subsidies in the beginning of 2020, but what prevented further progress was that we did not agree in the trilateral on what to do with the outcome of our work. In the end, it boiled down to the question, do we believe that China can be disciplined through enforceable rules in the WTO or not? The answer of uh, the current USTR was no, which is the reason why they went for a different approach. One where they negotiated bilaterally with China and then wanted to enforce unilaterally. So what separated us and what prevented us from moving forward from the trilateral work was a divergence on what happens next from our point of view what happens next on industrial subsidies is we have to pick up the work on substance again because what happened in the meantime is the covid crisis everyone around the world has been pouring massive amounts of money into shoring up economic activity saving jobs etc so we need to look at how do we factor in such singular events as the covid crisis in our disciplines in a way that we create a necessary policy space, but we don't create a loophole uh, that makes these disciplines um, ineffective. So we need to, to take up the work again on substance. We had also worked quite well on the issue of public body, where we actually do agree with the US administration that the appellate body of the WTO may have been more restrictive than necessary in its interpretation. Now, the solution to that is not to kill the sheriff who is applying the rules in the absence of clearer guidance from the members of the WTO, but it is upon the members to clarify the rules they want to see applied. So that is, again, something we would like to pick up. And I think on forced technology transfer, we actually have a good basis now through the US phase one deal and Kai to take this forward. So from our point of view, we should move relatively quickly out of the trilateral into the WTO and to launch a joint statement initiative on this at the next WTO ministerial. Because obviously, this will only have an impact uh, if it is carried by more members, if there is strong pressure. China will react When it is confronted with a unified position of a number of like-minded countries that put pressure to limit uh, the uh, subsidies that lead also to overcapacity that is hurting a number of regions around the world.
1: Um, Can I go back to one of these autonomous issues that, that you talked about briefly, and that's dealing with forced labor, so in, in the United States, uh, over the last couple of months, we have seen a number of uh, import ban actions being taken under US law. These things are called withhold release orders, uh, applied to uh, Chinese companies and most recently imports coming out of the Shenzhen region entirely of, of cotton and tomato products out of concerns that forced labor is being used to to create these goods. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what the European Union's toolbox is in, in this area uh, and how it is that you would view using trade and trade sanctions to address these kind of concerns?
2: The issue of forced labor is one that has been preoccupying us for quite a while now. And we are in the business of strengthening our toolbox to deal with this sort of thing. There are two avenues here. One is we have a brand new a global human rights sanction instrument where the work on the listings of the entities concerned is starting now. This is a really brand new instrument. So that is one of the ways, one of the instruments available to deal with this issue. The second is that we have been working now for a while on a a draft legislation to deal with due diligence of companies. Uh, And to ensure that supply chains are sustainable in an environmental way, but also in terms of labor rights and respect of human rights. And here we are looking at what can we do, how can we design an instrument that would prevent the placing on the EU market of products derived from forced labor. This is a proposal that is currently being elaborated in the European Commission. Uh, We have a public consultation going on about it, and we intend to come forward with uh, the draft law in the middle of this year. In the meantime, we are also considering bridging actions until this law would be adopted, and that is there are already a number of uh, international guidelines for companies And we are looking at the possibility of issuing guidance to these companies, reminding them of the obligations they would already have under the existing guidelines, and to make sure that these are um, known uh, and honored.
1: So the idea is to sort of shift the responsibility uh, onto the companies that may have more information on the ground. Um, But what do you foresee in, in terms of, say, penalties? Is it you know, just kind of prospective, we stop the trade coming in from those companies, or no, we're actually going to impose, you know, financial sanctions on the companies themselves for having broken the rules that we expected them to follow in terms of not relying on forced labor in their supply chains? What do you see here?
2: These issues are still under consideration. I think what is very clear is that you need a multi-pronged approach to deal with the issue of forced labor. Uh, One issue is to strengthen the ILO and to promote adherence to ILO conventions. Another thing is to look at imported products. And a third approach is to look at the sanctions uh, regime. And we have this new global human rights sanctions instrument that has uh, just come uh, uh, onto our statute book. The issue is that a lot of the products produced uh, with forced labour actually stay in the domestic market. So if you only tackle the import dimension, you may not really affect the change on the ground you're after. And I think the choice of instrument depends also on whether you want to take a stance or whether you want to make an impact. And that requires a combination of different instruments. Now, how exactly we will design the due diligence law is something I cannot tell you at this stage because uh, we are still in the process of doing an impact assessment. Issues of liability are very complicated. We need to look at what are the burdens on uh, smaller companies as compared to bigger ones. So there are a lot of details that still need to be worked out and
0: which we are looking at. Great. Can I move on to Airbus Boeing, our one of our least favourite disputes? Is 2021 going to be the year when we get to say goodbye to this thing? And has the pandemic affected its chances of getting resolved? Airbus Boeing is a conflict that has
2: been going on for, I think, 17 years. And I think it has put a lot of kids of lawyers on both sides of the Atlantic through college. But I think it is time to put an end to that. We thought that we would have a possibility to settle this with the outgoing administration. Once both parties had received the WTO ruling and their authorization to impose sanctions. And we indeed started a process which um, seemed to be on a decent track. But then in the middle of this conversation, which was still ongoing in uh, December, we all of a sudden, without much advance warning, I think we had a couple of hours of advance warning, we learned that the US uh, revved up the sanctions um, on the last day of the year. Um, And that, of course, uh, then put an end to the discussions that had been ongoing. These discussions would have allowed us to at least uh, establish some basic rules on future disciplines um, and to deal with the suspension of the sanctions while working out the details. That is what we were working on. And I think it should be absolutely possible to come to an agreement on these issues. Now, we should not underestimate the difficulty because both sides subsidize large civil aircraft, but in very different manners. And in the US, a lot of the support also comes from military uh, contracts, military procurement, military research, which then also benefits the civil uh, aircraft section of Boeing. That is a way of subsidization which we do not have. On the EU side, the Airbus company, with its very specific uh, setup, the role of member states in this, um, has been based on a system of launch aid, which is a very particular mechanism to finance large civil aircraft, reflects the fact that uh, Airbus does not have the same access to large, liquid, integrated capital markets as Boeing has. And these differences in the way in which both sides subsidize are then difficult to reconcile in future disciplines. But it's not impossible. And I think we have a strong incentive to put an end to this, has the pandemic affected this? The pandemic has certainly not made it easier to have negotiations. That's quite clear. But at the same time, I think it shows that we can't afford the luxury of not having ground rules in place, especially against the backdrop of other players also developing large civil aircraft and subsidizing it with much deeper pockets than either the US or the EU are willing uh, to open for um, subsidies for aircraft so our hope would be that we could agree fairly rapidly with the new administration on a suspension of the sanctions and give ourselves a timeline to agree on the future disciplines we hope that we could find an agreement on future disciplines and putting to bed the pending uh, conflict within six months
1: Another transatlantic area of dispute is on these digital services taxes. Um, the United States, the Trump administration has done these investigations uh, over many, but it's got the ones uh, for, for France's DST all lined up to potentially impose sanctions, and yet they had decided not to. So why do you think they waited? Um, what arguments were you making to them in, in this process? And do you think at the end of the day that this fight is just going to end up in, in tariffs?
2: I'm not going to speculate about the motivations uh, of, uh, of the U.S. in this respect. I mean, we have uh, taken good note and welcome the fact that they have refrained from imposing uh, tariffs uh, in response to digital services taxes. I think the discussion has always been the same. And that is, why should digital companies have a lower tax burden contribute less to financing public services than brick-and-mortar companies. That is an issue of basic fairness. We have an OECD process, which is looking at this issue, which is also then looking at uh, who gets the revenue from this taxation, which is, of course, also an important element. And our hope would be that the OECD process will lead us to an understanding that will allow us uh, to put an end to this conflict and I read the fact that uh, the US has refrained from imposing measures now as an indication that the transition team uh, and the incoming administration want to give a chance to the multilateral process that would be consistent with all the noises they have made in, in this respect. And this is certainly something we, uh, we would welcome. It's something we have uh, insisted on from the beginning. We should work together in the OECD. Uh, but let me also be clear, the imposition of uh, sanctions by the U.S. on the digital services tax uh, levied by member states would be WTO incompatible if the U.S. thinks that these taxes uh, imposed by one or the other member state do not respect WTO rules, they should take it to the WTO dispute settlement, but not take the law into their own hands. So I think that is also an important uh, point uh, we have been making.
0: Great. So, in the interest of time, I'm going to scootle over um, quickly to a very different and very large topic, uh, which is the pandemic. Uh, and and so, I suspect that we may have been hearing cries of open strategic autonomy, pandemic or not. As I think this is a concept that is is relevant to the China strategy. Um, well, I say it's a it's a concept. There's obviously been a lot of confusion about what it means, uh, because I think you can't really be open. And also autonomous, you know, autarky is autonomous. That's great, but that's not what the EU is. So my question is what what this means uh, in concrete terms, but in relation to the pandemic. So has the pandemic changed any practical thing when it comes to EU policymaking? The discussions on strategic
2: autonomy and the EU have been around for a while. And President von der Leyen described her commission as a geopolitical commission. And that was closely linked to the concept of strategic autonomy. Then, of course, this was, you know, like a a mindset or an aspiration. And then, of course, the work started on filling that with content. The crisis has had an impact in terms of adding open in front of strategic autonomy. Because what we have seen at the beginning of the pandemic was a reflex of countries closing in on themselves around the world and even inside the EU. Now, we were scrambling to uh, rectify this. It took us a few weeks um, to deal with restrictions that had been introduced on protective equipment, etc. But in a way, this was a shock. This disruption also of supply chains was a shock that made everyone realize to what extent we actually depend on openness and that that is the basis of the EU's prosperity. So what does open strategic autonomy mean? It obviously does not mean autarky or self-sufficiency. Open strategic autonomy, if I have to sum it up in one sentence, I would say is a mindset which means we act together with others, multilaterally or bilaterally, wherever we can, and we act autonomously wherever we must. And the whole of it adds up to the EU standing up for its values and interests.
1: So this is my last question. Thinking ahead about the agenda for, for 2021, now that President Trump is, is going to be leaving, we can think about saving the planet again. And, and worry about climate change. And so the Biden administration has indicated this is going to be a, a huge priority for them as well, uh, getting back into the, the Paris Climate Accord on, on day one. But you at the commission seem to be ready to go even further than that. Uh, and you're drawing up plans for a carbon border adjustment mechanism. Can you give us some hints on, on what that particular policy tool might look like?
2: The Green Deal has been at the center of uh, this commission's and overall the EU's economic policy uh, from from the beginning of of this mandate. And that has translated itself into a number of different ways. So we are now looking at upping our ambition for reduction of emissions to 55% compared to 1990. Uh, We have committed to climate uh, neutrality by 2050. We have basically oriented the large sums of money made available, the 1.8 trillion programme for recovery, uh, around the twin transitions of digital and um, and, uh, the Green Deal. And all this to show that um, you need to look at the Commission's approach or the EU's approach to climate change, not through the prism of one policy measure, which is the carbon border adjustment mechanism. But you need to look at the whole setup of ambition, how we are really trying to transform our economies, and that is a massive exercise for the EU economy. But the EU only accounts for 8% of global emissions. So... We can only address climate change and the climate emergency that we are confronted with if we are working with others. That is why we are setting up climate alliances with countries around the world. And hopefully we will be able to do that now also with the US government. And here we are looking at all the issues from the cooperation on clean technologies, exchange of goods and services that contribute to mitigating climate change carbon markets, carbon pricing, emissions trading system, etc. And then, of course, if you go to all that trouble, you also have to deal with the issue of carbon leakage. And that is essential for the effectiveness of uh, all the climate policy we are doing. We, can, we will not be able to effect the transformation we are seeking and to mitigate climate change if then production moves outside to jurisdictions uh, with less stringent rules Uh, or if we import carbon content that we are not producing domestically any longer. But the idea is, of course, on our side to put this in the context of alliances with third countries, work with them, and then see where such mechanisms are necessary to address carbon leakage. If everyone ups their level of ambition, if there's no discrepancy, no large discrepancy in the level of ambition between major emitters, then the risk of carbon leakage is reduced. And that is the way in which we are discussing with partner countries what we are doing. So we are currently looking at the possible design of such a measure. We have committed to doing this in a way which is WTO compatible. And uh, we will set out uh, our plans, uh, which are going to be firmed up uh, between now and March, April, in order to be translated into a legislative proposal by the middle of the year. Between now and then, we will have lots of discussions and all this also in view of the climate summit at the end of the year.
0: I have one last question, um, which is, we've spoken about carbon leakage and trade policy as one part of a bigger green deal. Are there any limits to what trade policy can do when it comes to the environment? And specifically, I'm thinking of trade deals, you know, being used to enforce environmental commitments elsewhere. That is a very good question, and I think it's something we are really thinking about
2: because the major contribution of trade policy to addressing climate change is by promoting a more efficient allocation of scarce resources, including natural resources. So if we have efficiency gains through an international division of labour, in principle, that is also good for the environment and is good for the climate. And that we need to maximise this positive impact of trade on climate protection. And we can do that by privileging um, market opening for green goods and services, climate-mitigating goods and services, by promoting the distribution of technologies, uh, by fostering innovation, etc. So there are lots of things on the positive side. Unfortunately, a lot of the debate often focuses on um, the negative side, a sanctions-based approach. And that is a problem, because I think that you can only address a global challenge like climate change through global cooperation. We use our free trade agreements as platforms for cooperation. But if you want to effect change on the ground, you need to work with other partners. You need to convince people to follow a certain line. You cannot just impose... Uh, we have uh, neither the legitimacy nor necessarily the leverage to change production uh, methods around the world through our trade agreements. There are cases where we account for a relatively small part of the production of a third country in terms of what they export to us. Well, they are not going to change their production methods just because they export one or two percent of their production of a given, in a given sector to the EU. But if we have a cooperative approach where we look at how can we facilitate uh, a change in production methods, how can we support it through aid for trade, which needs to, needs to be greened, then I think we have a much better chance of making an impact on the ground. I think we also need to have a more granular approach to this issue. I mean, there's no point treating 194 countries around the world in the same way in this respect. I think we need to focus on the G20 countries uh, who are the big emitters. And the biggest game changer here is a commitment to climate neutrality. That is what we need from the big emitters. Effective implementation of the Paris Agreement is good on its own, but it is not sufficient because it does not oblige people to go for a specific reduction of their emissions. So from that point of view, I think we need to have a much more targeted approach and a more cooperative approach rather than a sanctions-based one. Sabina, thanks for joining us. You're most welcome. It's been a pleasure and a challenge.
1: And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Sabina Veyand, the Director General for Trade at the European Commission.
0: This has been a long episode, but there will be more. We're planning on doing an episode on Kai when it gets published. And so you can expect a bit more analysis from us there. And obviously, there will be more episodes on everything else we've discussed as it as it comes up. Thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy.
1: Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown.
0: And I'm at Samaya Keynes.
1: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
0: That's not one but two underscores. At trade underscore underscore talks. I've just realized we haven't asked about Brexit um, in 10 words or fewer. Uh, is, is it going well, would you say?
1: <laughs> that's it. We'll just leave the silence for that. Okay, that's it.
0: <laughs> Great, cool.
2: Um, I, I think it is time uh, to put an end to the Brexit discussion. We now have a partnership and cooperation agreement, and that marks a new beginning. And I think we should look ahead
0: and not backwards. Excellent. Um, Yeah.